c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. One of the first purchases Pujol makes in Portugal is that of a Baydecker Tourist Guide to England, Bradshaw's Railway Timetable, and a large map of Great Britain. He sets himself up in Cascais, a coastal city about 30 kilometers away from Lisbon, and starts sending letters back to the German embassy in Madrid, describing his activities in London. Notably, he was not in London, in fact, he had never intended to go to London. He left Madrid perhaps purely to lend veracity to his story and to avoid any accidental encounters that might reveal his deception. He even invented a Royal Dutch Airlines pilot who agreed to ferry his messages from Britain to Portugal to bypass the British censor. This was actually to account for the fact that his letters had no mark of the British Postal Service. He gave Abwehr a forwarding address in Lisbon, actually the address of a friend who he told that the letters from Abwehr were actually from a mistress. After receiving his first letters from the Germans, he again returned to the British Embassy, and while he managed to get an audience with an official, they apparently didn't find this all that interesting and failed to follow up. If he was born, like, in the 90s, instead of being a famous international double spy, he would just be a weirdly well-connected gas station clerk who spent a lot of time on Reddit. (laughs) Absolutely. This is a mind-boggling amount of of work just to hide the fact that you actually can't- He would be one of those people, one of those people who says that they're going on vacation and actually just spends the entire week that they're away photoshopping themselves into pictures of foreign locales. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Had, like, chroma key green screen technology existed in his day and age, his spy career would have been way more colorful. (laughs) He absolutely would have said pictures. Look, I'm in Thailand. (laughs) And now here I am in India. (laughs) I'm in front of the Sydney Opera House. Pujol used magazines and reference books from a local library to get the names and addresses of British businesses, newsreels for visual information to guide his bogus eyewitness accounts, and an English-French dictionary of military terms. As an aside, while Pujol had some grasp of English from learning it in school, it was a fairly weak grasp. He barely spoke English. Oh, good. So we're going to be a British spy with no grasp of the English language. <laughs> Not no grasp, just an extremely weak, infantile, before you've really developed gross motor skills kind of grasp. Mmm, <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. Pujol, because he's working out of a fucking public library in Lisbon, makes a few obvious bloopers due to his limited understanding of British culture, such as the claim that a Glaswegian contact would do anything for a liter of wine, and that the, and the fact that he submitted his expenses to Abwehr in itemized lists rather than totals because he struggled to grasp the pre-decimalization British pound. Oh, good. Yeah, like... This guy from the Scottish guy from Glasgow will do anything for a liter of wine. He did not understand British drinking culture at all. He missed the mark a little bit. Missed the mark a little bit. In like every like high school band, there's always you know there's always really 
brilliant kids, very precociously talented kids. And there's always, like, one kid in the back who just can't fucking hit a block of wood with a stick to the right rhythm. That's him. That's his spy style. It's, it's just him failing to play the spoons. Furthermore, in the 1940s, Spain had already had a system where a hundred pennies equaled the dollar. Spain had had that for generations, but Britain still ran on a system where 240 pennies equaled a pound. Nothing makes sense or in Britain. Or if you prefer, 12 pennies equaled a shilling, and 20 shillings equaled a pound. Their money's weird, they weigh themselves with stones that don't add up. It's, it's a different place. They have their own unique culture. They're the ones who came up with the imperial that. system. The whole reason that, like, Americans can't figure out how a meter works is their fault. Mm-hmm. This is a system which is basically just grandfathered in arbitrary measurements that make no mathematical sense. Like, we could like, measure in base tens. Oh, we could measure by the king's foot. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, things like having a base 12 system where not everything is a multiple of 12. <laughs> oh, that's, that's intuitive. Oh, absolutely. And this is not even bringing in things like crowns and half pennies oh, and fucking farthings. <laughs> the good old farthing. The good old farthing. Honestly, I think the British pound system is why like a lot of odd items like buns come in come in twelves. It's just fucking easier. It's just easier at that point. Just twelve pennies, please. Just just hand them over. Just just a shilling. Just a fucking shilling. You needed more than a degree from the Royal Chicken Academy if you were going to successfully make change in a British store. Oh, absolutely. And like, here's the, here's the ridiculous part. They only switch over to a base 10 system in 1971. Hmm. Pujol, like an elderly grandfather trying to figure out an iPhone, struggled with the conversion between pence, shilling, and shillings and pounds, and sent lists of expenses rather than risk bungling adding them into a total. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Just get a chart. Figure it out. Yeah. Afterwards, he switched to simply converting the sums and submitting his expenses in dollars, which made more sense and which he was being paid in any way. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to work that hard, man. <laughs> it's like how Canada switched over to the metric system fairly recently, generationally. Like, my mother remembers being taught the imperial system. So you end up in this odd halfway system where some things we measure in inches and some things we measure in centimeters, but <laughs> it's almost arbitrary and nonsensical. Americans think like, oh, like all Canadians use the, the metric system. We use it for like long distances. Like, oh yeah, like that's three kilometers away. But we measure ourselves in feet and inches. Like, if you told another Canadian, as a Canadian, oh, I'm 166 centimeters tall, they would stare at you like a cow stares at an oncoming train. <laughs> what a colorful <laughs> metaphor. They would look at you like a deer in headlights. They would be baffled and confused. I will say, though, like, by moving to America, like, you really... It doesn't occur to you how much you rely on the metric system until you move here. Because I'm like, oh yeah, I grew up with the imperial system. When somebody tells me that somebody's driving 90 miles an hour, I'm just like, and? I don't <laughs> I don't know if that's highway speed. I don't know if that's school zone speed. I don't know if that's speeding. It's a lot, actually. That is incredible. Oh, yeah. That is way so too fast. That's that is way too fast. Do not do 90 in a school zone. You will 
children will become a fine red mist beneath <laughs> your wheels. But... Yeah. Yeah. Their beloved dogs will be will be a, a, a like a pasty smear across the sidewalk. <laughs> Do not go that fast. But like people will tell me stuff like, "Oh, he was driving ninety five miles an hour," or "It's going to be ninety six degrees tomorrow," and I'd have to convert it before I can show any kind of reaction to that information. <laughs> I just. I don't know what to do with it. It's like, all right, tomorrow we're going to have blue squirrel weather. I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't yeah. know. What is that? Yeah. People will be just like, oh, it's about 90 degrees in here. I'm like, okay, so either you're going to die or that's a perfectly normal temperature. I have no idea. I don't know what that is. Is that yeah. fridge temperature? What? I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. People will talk about like, oh, it gets like 120 degrees there. And I'm like, holy, sh- holy fuck. Yeah, that's, that's an, what was my initial reaction. Like, that's the kind of temperature your oven should be. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we'll we'll be dying tomorrow as our bodies <laughs> boil off into the atmosphere. <laughs> oh, okay, good. So we're going to be boiling away our body fat and becoming desiccated bones on the, on the middle of the highway. Good to know. <laughs> but what's the weather next Tuesday? <laughs> there, like, it's not just that it's shifted up. It's that, like, the degrees are smaller. Their minus 40 is around the same as our minus 40. It's exactly the same as our it's minus exactly 40. It's exactly the same as our minus 40. But, like, their plus 12 is actually really fucking cold. <laughs> yeah, that's always that's been kind of a fun thing, though, coming from, like, the frozen tundra of Edmonton. People are like, how cold does it get in Edmonton? I'm like, oh, you know, about minus 40. And there's always sort of like, what's the conversion on that? When you tell them it's exactly the same, you can just watch the hope drain from their eyes. <laughs> Yeah, they were just secretly hoping that was, like, minus 20 or something. No, no they're hoping it's, like, three. They're, they're, they, don't, they don't want a world to exist that's, like... They thought Planet Hoth was fictional, and then when you tell them that, no, that's just sort of the climate where I went to elementary school, yeah. it hurts them on the inside, yeah. because it hurts all of us. I remember having days at school where it really hurt your face to turn into the wind, but when you turned away from the wind, it created a little bubble around your face where there wasn't enough oxygen so you couldn't breathe. Oh, yes. <laughs> Albertan childhood. <laughs> Telling people measurements in a measurement system they're not familiar with is like speaking another language. Yeah. You might as well be telling them telling them how much how much change to give you in Spanish. Oh yeah, if some lady walks up to me and is like, "My bra cup size is purple." I'm like, "I don't know what that is." What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm melon inches tall. What what? What? <laughs> Probably should figure that out though if you're trying to be a fucking spy. Oh, absolutely. Like how do you not know how the money works? You're spy. You're pretending to spy on this country from people who can and will fucking kill you. <laughs> Probably should have thought that through. Probably should have thought it through. Pujol fed Abver a mixture of true information gleaned from his map and tourist guide and completely fabricated inventions of his own, as well as slowly creating a network of British contacts who were the sources of his information none of whom ever existed. These supposed contacts were useful as they granted Pujol a layer of protection around his credibility as an agent. If the information Pujol provided turned out to be inaccurate, well, it may very well be the fault of a lower-level informant. These pretend contacts and subagents allowed Pujol, as well, to claim for their expenses. <laughs> I just like that he's feeding him information from a commercially available tour guide. Yeah. 
So it's like, all right, so the British will be advancing on the Western Front next week. And also, this shop on Wellington Street makes the most delightful scones. He he purposefully adopts this extremely poetic, prosy style so that he can fill up an entire page without giving them very much information at all. Because he does not know what he's talking about and he fucking knows it. Again, he's having the typical undergraduate experience. <laughs> he is every undergrad trying to fake having studied on the final essay exam. <laughs> Except instead of an English teacher, he's got fucking Nazis. <laughs> with guns. With guns. <laughs> you know, if I had Nazis with guns grading all my papers, I might have studied harder, Pujol. <laughs> Is that a tip for universities? Is that a suggestion that you're making? Listen up, colleges. Want to get your numbers up? Well, well. Submachine guns. Nazis with guns. <laughs> Just give every single jumpy English prof an AK-47. <laughs> There's no way that will end tragically. Scars will shoot right up. Oh, God. <laughs> My pr current professor cannot successfully operate Google Chrome without causing himself personal injury. There's no way he can operate a gun. It'll be a slaughter. <laughs> oh, God. The best case scenario is that it jams. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Educational administration is out for you as a career path. <laughs> interesting, interesting note. Pujol, over the course of his time as a spy, claims hundreds of thousands of dollars US. boy. <laughs> he is single-handedly draining military intelligence's coffers. <laughs> <laughs> He's gotta get paid. He's all about that dollar dollar bill, yo. <laughs> oh my god, it hurt hearing you say that. <laughs> you are welcome. Ooh. This seems to convince Abwehr, but that doesn't mean his handlers are satisfied. Pujol received a message from the Germans during this time asking for more detailed, substantive reports on troop movements. This made Pujol nervous because he knew absolutely shit all about the British military, and he couldn't exactly find detailed diagrams of contemporary British army tactics in the local library. I want to know at this point, he's like, why is he doing this? He is a double agent for a government that doesn't consent to have him spy. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. He is fucking freelancing. Like, not just freelancing, he's like an artist who sets up on, on like a city sidewalk like and starts playing the bongo drums he is that <laughs> no one asked you to do this <laughs> yeah it's like walking into a save on foods kicking the displays over and screaming for Safeway," <laughs> and walking out into the night when they have not asked you to do that at all yeah like not only have they not asked them to do that they have specifically rejected him three times now <laughs> take a hint sir yeah, he went up to them when he had nothing, offered him his services. He went up to them when he had, like, invisible ink, offered them his services, and then went up to them when he had a letter from, from Abwehr, and they still thought he was a crazy man. <laughs> it takes dedication to exile yourself to a foreign city yeah. and just send fake mail and Shepard's Pie reviews to your German handlers all day <laughs> for no apparent personal gain. <laughs> I mean, you just give up your job in Madrid and start freelance spying for people who never asked you to do anything. He was just doing it for the sweet, sweet expense money. It's just like if I walked into a hardware store tomorrow, 
in, in like a passable seeming orange orange outfit and just started selling people hammers. <laughs> <laughs> no one asked you to do it. This is not how the market the, the labor market works, Pujol. <laughs> do not take this man's example. This will not get you a job. <laughs> Don't dress for the job you want. You have. Dress for the job you want. And then also move to a foreign city for the job you want. And then perform the duties of the job you want as if you had that job. All while continuously applying for that job and being told no, no, for the hundredth time. No. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Excellent job advice from Juan Pujol Garcia. So he gets spooked by this, and in February 1942, Pujol's wife tried the Lisbon embassy of a recent entrant into the war, the United States, and managed to get through to the office of the naval attaché. The Americans, convinced of the veracity of Gonzalez's account, then advised their counterparts in the British embassy to take note of the situation. This is the problem, like, with this era, when everybody's phone numbers are three digits, you can just call anybody. Oh, absolutely! You want to call the president? You can call the president. Yeah. You want to meet the American naval attaché in Lisbon? Go for it. He's down the block. Phone him up. Just call him up. Just phone him up. Just call him up. It's good. Yeah. Like, admittedly, they walked into this embassy, but it's it's just insane. If I walked into this, like, an embassy today, I'd get to talk to the clerk. And that would be everybody I got to talk to. Yeah, the higher-ups of the Canadian embassy, the, the head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Services does not field calls from the public. No, absolutely not. Uh, this brings us to British intelligence, specifically MI5, the organization tasked with domestic counter-espionage. The British during World War II had a highly sophisticated intelligence-gathering, code-breaking, and misinformation capacity. By the time that Pujol had started his own freelance espionage, MI5 had captured, turned, or otherwise eliminated every single German intelligence agents in Britain. Oh, plus they had Alan Turing, which is kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. This is after they cracked... Enigma. Uh, the Enigma code. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the Germans, w- it, believing in their all-powerful, unbeatable Enigma code, would just, like, openly message each other about where they were j- dropping their spies. They would parachute them in, and then the ger- the British would just be standing there waiting for them to land. <laughs> At some point, you gotta figure it out. Oh my gosh. These spies were parach- like were caught as they hit the ground, and many defected voluntarily. They had even, like, the British had even invented a few fake domestic contacts of their own, and Abwehr had no idea. They were entirely in the dark that the reports coming through from their spies in Britain had been written in whole or in part by British intelligence, feeding them a careful mixture of nonsense, true but useless information, and interesting, exciting-seeming snippets carefully tailored so that they were basically useless. Abwehr had no independent agents left to contradict what the compromised agents were telling them. For an era that was, like, grounded in fierce nationalism, everybody involved has the loyalty of a jilted 13-year-old girl. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's it's amazing what pointing a gun at somebody and telling them that their options are to lie to their former spy masters or die. It's amazing what that'll do. (laughs) Super effective. (laughs) Absolutely. British government shows gun to face. (laughs) It was super effective. Oh yeah, like absolutely most of the spies who are turning, some of them are defecting voluntarily, but there's a large amount of them that it's, this, this is, this is coerced. 
these people are being coerced into into doing what the British want, and they are therefore under lock and key at all times. The British do not trust these agents at all. Pretty solid. They should. Um, they didn't trust fucking hmm. our guy here. Yeah, yeah. They are reading their most valuable, highly classified transmissions over morning fucking tea. They are not getting cocky. <laughs> <laughs> the British don't do cocky. Yeah, like this is Operation Fortitude, which was a vast operation to hide the fact that the British had, in fact, completely corrupted and taken over uh, not only the Enigma Code, but the entire German sp- uh, spy apparatus within Britain. Hmm. Yeah. Just a regular old party. Mm-hmm. F- having fun with the Brits. All of which is why British intelligence was highly surprised when the German communications they intercepted seemed to indicate that a trusted Abwehr operative under the codename of Arabelle was active in Britain. Not only that, but they couldn't seem to find him. (laughs) He's so well hidden, it's like he doesn't even exist. Like, we can't find him no matter where we search within the British Isles. It's like he's not even here. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Weird. It was a, this, it, this was a startling and inexplicable situation. That is, until intelligence analysts determined that Arabelle, whoever he was, couldn't possibly be in Britain. Rather, due to the timing and nature of the missives, he was most likely a Spanish national operating out of Portugal. I wonder who that could be. Hmm. I wonder who that is. <laughs> also, he literally got to choose his own spy name and he went with Arabelle. Oh no, he didn't get to choose his own spy name. The the Germans just called him uh I don't actually remember what Arabelle means, but it's Latin. It's really pretentious. Oh good. I would have gone with something more down to earth like Skull Crusher. Ah. <laughs> I like that you can do black Swedish metal with your mouth. <laughs> Thanks. It's a hobby I developed as a young child desperately trying to be funny. Da, da, da. Jokes aren't working. I guess we're going straight to thrash metal. That always gets a chuckle. <laughs> Raiding corpses. Raiding corpses. Blood. Kill the innocents. <laughs> Real knee slapper. Yeah, it's... Uh, I had an odd sense of humor as a as a 12-year-old. <laughs> unlike, unlike baby Janelle, uh... Tiny Jessica never really developed teenage angst. I was just sort of like constantly socially rejected and couldn't quite figure out why. And it's was because basically... you say angst. That's why you were rejected. I solved the mystery. <laughs> I didn't know angst when I was 12. That's why I get rejected now. <laughs> oh, good, good. Seriously, my roommate came over to me the other day and just said, you know, Janelle is right. I fucking hate the way you say angst. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so Sweet there you validation. go. Justification. Validation. There you go. Also, I had enough teenage angst for you, me, and a busload of children. Yeah, but like Several I people. was like incapable of normal teenage emotions. So my basic response to constant social rejection was just to go, hmm, I'm going to try to just like, yeah, I'm just going to troubleshoot troubleshoot other children's social reactions and try to figure out what will make them accept me. That's okay because like not having a normal emotional range of a teenager is fine because the normal teenage emotional response no matter what is happening is to cry into an ill-fitting sweater while you listen to Linkin Park at unsafe volumes. (laughs) It's it's just it's just that. That might be why I never really got Linkin Park. (laughs) It's just new metal and crying over your eyeliner all down your face. (laughs) 
Arabelle's description of Britain were vivid to the point that it was almost unbelievable that they may have come from a man who had never stepped foot on British soil, but the strategic information he passed on, while highly detailed, was notably inaccurate, nay, clearly intentionally deceptive. Not only that, but the Germans seemed to trust Arabelle utterly. Oh, good. Of particular interest was one claim from Arabelle that the British would be sending a military convoy out to Malta, which, after receiving, the German navy then scrambled to set an ambush for, wasting a massive amount of fuel and man-hours because, of course, there was no British convoy. Nonetheless, such was Abwehr's trust in their new agent that instead of blaming Arabelle for supplying faulty information, the Germans instead blamed the Italians for the mission's failure. No fun. (laughs) I also like this is the second time on this podcast we have made fun of the German police for being gullible. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is German military intelligence. Close enough. And they are also unbelievable rubes. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable rubes. Official opinion. That's the technical term. 1942 Nazi regime military intelligence were a bunch of fucking rubes. (laughs) This is why you don't write historical books. This is absolutely why. Uh, It is after the home office, office of the intelligence service makes this determination that somebody connected to the Iberian segment of the service finally puts two and two together and says... If I may paraphrase, um, well, we do have this odd Spanish dude who keeps showing up at our embassies and yammering about how he's a German spy who wants to work with us to defeat Hitler. Thought he was a bit of a crank. <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> yes, he's absolutely crazy. This is everything he's doing he's is insane. absolutely insane. <laughs> so this is a tempting opportunity for British intelligence, an entirely unexpected new route for disinformation, entirely trusted by the enemy. Nevertheless, the vital paranoia of the British reared its head. Perhaps this was a trick. Perhaps the Germans had come to suspect that their spies in Britain had been compromised, and the much-lauded, much-trusted Arabelle was in fact a triple agent meant to infiltrate and spoil the entire plot, because there is no way the Germans could believe this nonsense, right? (laughs) They're just giving the Germans way too much credit at this point. Absolutely way too much credit. The British are playing chess while the Germans are playing checkers. But at the same- Like, they're not even playing checkers at this point. They're just eating the pieces. They're eating the pieces (laughs) and trying to play tic-tac-toes, but they don't quite know the rules. They do not know what the fuck they're doing. Eventually, in April 1942, they decided to bring Juan Pujol Garcia alongside his family to Britain to interview him as a potential valuable asset. When the British intelligence agents asked Pujol why he, a member of a neutral nation with no reason to put his life at risk, would volunteer to help them, he told them a story. A story his older brother Joachim had told him, about how he had driven through France and had witnessed a massacre where the Gestapo, the German secret police, dragged innocent people from their farmhouses and shot them in the back of the head, one by one. And this was why he had decided to help them in their cause to defeat the evil Nazi regime. Well, I know how I'm writing my cover letters from now on. Why do you want the job? So farmers will get shot in the head. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Here you go. Handshake and there there you, the job's yours. All right. (laughs) When are you free? (laughs) Please tell me someone else hasn't snapped you up immediately. Oh God. 
oh, that's the next thing I'm going to argue when I'm when I'm in for a translation job. People are like, okay, so why do you want to join us at our at our our lovely NGO? I'm like, I want to defeat Hitler. <laughs> right. And our your second interview will be conducted by security as they walk you to the front door. <laughs> Yeah, these interviews, along with the rest of the information they have on Pujol, convinces British intelligence to accept him as a spy and to bring him in on the Allies' high-level high military plans. But here's the thing. You know that story that Pujol tells them about Joachim? Oh, God. It wasn't fucking true. God damn it. Yeah, Joachim had never, ever left Spain. This massacre never happened. So do we even know his motives for doing any of this? <laughs> it's genuinely difficult. I read his entire memoirs and like, I have no idea how much of it was complete and utter bullshit. I really don't. <laughs> Are we just back to shits and gigs as a motive? Shits and giggles? Like, I, I think he genuinely did hate fascists. I think he gen that was a genuine motive for him. That being said, he lies to basically everybody. <laughs> uh, and I think it is to an extent because he is getting a thrill out of it. So we don't even know if he was a double agent. It's just he just wanted to fuck some shit up. Oh, no, we, we absolutely do know that he was a double agent because he did not help the Germans at all. <laughs> <laughs> he was just a roadblock. Yeah, like he was lying to both sides, but he clearly had favorites. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Uh, under the British, Pujol, with the help of his primary handler, Thomas Harris, massively expanded his pretend network of spies and contacts. Pujol and Harris eventually created a network of 27 sub-agents and informants, some as far away as Canada, India, and Sri Lanka, all with their own names, code names, and backstories. I like to think that uh, he had, like, D&D-style character sheets. Oh, absolutely. And he would roll they're, for they're, attributes. <laughs> their skills, their dexterity, their wisdom. Oh, everything. <laughs> Just, like, you know, have, like, equipment lists for all of them. <laughs> oh, God. You know, he has his favorite ones. Oh, absolutely. He role-plays these agents. He and Harris mock up like eyewitness accounts and reports from all of these agents and fill out questionnaires that the that the Germans ask them to fill out and send them back. <laughs> so they're just big old nerds playing role play. Oh, absolutely. This is D&D &D for the sake of justice and the motherland. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I never get to play that version. All I have is 4.0. <laughs> Uh, when one of these imaginary agents, the wine-loving Glaswegian, became inconvenient due to his hypothetical proximity to actual useful sources of information in Britain, uh, they had him grow sick and die, oh. placed, uh, placed an obituary for him in the paper, then requested a pension for his equally imaginary bereaved widow. <laughs> <laughs> well, now he's just fucking with them. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm kind of jealous, actually. This just sounds like fun. Oh, like, this sounds delightful. It's like, I want an imaginary network of spies I can kill off at my own discretion. Oh, absolutely. And just having someone, like, because this is, this is something I actually kind of get, where it's just like, yeah, lying to people who are awful people is fun. <laughs> lying to everybody's like, fun. Lying is just fun. L lying is a delightful activity that you shouldn't do for a variety of reasons. Um, namely that, like, it will convince people that you're a fucking liar and not to <laughs> trust you. But getting away with lying is the most 
euphoric experience on planet Earth other than just straight up heroin. <laughs> it's the most fun you can have without a dirty spoon. <laughs> yeah. It's the most fun you can have without ending up homeless. Yay! <laughs> if you want to have fun, but you value your veins and you want to keep your pants on, it's pretty much lying or nothing. <laughs> One of the things notable here is a difference in handlers between uh, the German and the British side. Harris was a tr- was trained in fine art, an expert on Goya and an e- artist himself. Hmm. Un- very unlike Pujol's German handler, Nittel, who was a military man. Hmm. Uh, and this sort of reflects uh, a big difference between the British and the German perspective on spies. Hitler greatly uh, mistrusted his spies, and German intelligence primarily recruited from military families, whereas British intelligence greatly appreciated imagination and eccentricity among their intelligence officers. And I mean, spoiler alert, they won. Oh, (laughs) spoiler alert, they totally won. This is why you get people like Pujol and people like Alan Turing working for working for british intelligence they have a far broader understanding of what it takes to be a successful spy (laughs) and you know that's sort of why pujol fits in far better with british intelligence than he ever did with german intelligence so like i think we've actually found his motivation here he just wanted to make a friend (laughs) aww (laughs) friendship (laughs) and defeating hitler (laughs) So, Pujol's original codename with the British was Bovril, after a brand of beef extract. Basically a kind of concentrated soup stock, not entirely dissimilar to Marmite. Damn it, my Uh, codename is Bouillon Cube, and I'm sticking (laughs) to it. (laughs) My my codename is those little foil packets in ramen. (laughs) It's a bit of a handful, but we'll make it work. (laughs) Yeah. I just, anything for the cause. Agent uh, Flavor Packet, come in. <laughs> Agent Vegemite, are you there? <laughs> Agent Soupstock, where are you? Uh, however, in honor of his unparalleled acting abilities and talent for duplicity, MI5 gave Pujol the new codename Garbo, after Greta Garbo, the Swedish actress who once played a World War I spy. This had the additional advantage that the British figured if the Germans ever caught on that Garbo was like that that there was a Garbo double agent, they would assume that it was a woman. Oh, it's like the Marilyn Manson logic of World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> Just name all your spies after uh, 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 well-known German actresses. Genius. They'll think that it's like Charlie's Angels type situation. When actually you just have like a bunch of swarthy Spaniards. I mean, the Germans have pretty much proved themselves to be incompetent by this point. So if they see Agent Garbo, it's probably reasonable for them to think like, oh yeah, a well-known actress would become a spy and then use her own last name. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, I would not put it against them. Holy shit. <laughs> Can you just imagine like just... If if Marilyn Monroe had like been a major spy, we should promote that as our next dubious conspiracy theory. That'd be fun. Marilyn Monroe was a double agent, specifically for the for the Allied forces in World War Two. Hang on. 
<laughs> Whatever medication they have you on, they need to up the dose. It's just Prozac. Oh, and Adderall. I, I, I'm basically, my blood is a cocktail of uppers and downers that could be compared to a Hollywood starlet's at this point. Is this why you keep trying to give it to people? <laughs> I don't try to give people it's my- It's the nectar of happiness. I don't try to give people my medication. It's mine! You try to give them your blood. Oh, right, my blood. Yeah, they should take my blood. Why don't they want my blood, Janelle? That's, that's the other thing I'm on. My doctor gave me a bunch of free samples of iron supplements because- my my blood was at half of what it should be uh, in terms of iron. And uh, I went to uh, a blood donor clinic and they rejected me because apparently my blood wasn't good enough for them. I think there's literally an entire podcast where I mock you about this. Uh, no, we, we fucked up the recording. So we, we lost oh, all damn that it, the world will mockery. Never mockery. know how much I mocked you for being anemic. <laughs> Why do you make fun of me for being anemic? I'm because sad. you're too weak to fight back because you're anemic. <laughs> I just want to give people my blood, Janelle. Why don't they want my blood? Okay. This is why your parents won't live in the same province as you. Anyway, one of the major side effects of this new, this, these new, like, free iron supplements that my doctor gave me. You know, my doctor always trying to push nutrition on me. Um, I don't want your spinach. <laughs> One of the major side effects is that it turns your stool black. <laughs> what? So, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, so basically, my doctor told me, uh, like, like, don't be worried if your if your poop gets a little bit goth. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I I I didn't ask how or why this happened. I was just too amused. <laughs> don't know that you're seeing a real doctor. You might just be getting medical services from a hot topic. <laughs> They're just giving me dye packs and watching me eat them. Mm, comforting. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you know if my poop turns black. Please, God, do not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Aw, oh, come on. Aren't we friends? Nobody's that close. <laughs> Nobody's that friendly. That's a level of intimacy too far. <laughs> That's between you and your doctor. You're, or the hot topic clerk, whatever. I know you're attempting to make a human connection, but this is a swing and a miss. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to feel close to someone. <laughs> uh, so for years, Pujol used the agents and resources of the British Intelligence Service to swamp Abwehr with massive amounts of information. Some useless, some false, but much of it accurate descriptions of the movements of British military assets, albeit just a little too late to be of real use to the Germans. Some of it was even genuinely useful, timely information. All to build up Arabelle as a credible source in the eyes of Abwehr. All to serve the final vital deception. Can you imagine how much of a jackass he'd feel if he was throwing out fake predictions and he accidentally landed on something correct? Oh, he almost did in his early in his early time. As a freelance agent, God it damn really it. freaked people out. <laughs> this is the opposite of what I wanted. This is opposite of useful. Like, that would be such a faux pas, though. Like, if you accidentally ended up getting, like, a submarine sunk because you were just fucking guessing. Bad double agent. Bad double agent. Very bad. You go to Lisbon and you think about what you did. <laughs> you go to Lisbon! <laughs> 
So in the lead up to the invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944, the Allies used fake radio traffic and the double agents they had determined to be the most trusted by Abwehr to feed the Germans false information that the that the attacks on Normandy would be nothing but a feint and that the real weight of the Allied forces would be on Pas de Calais. The three double agents put up to this task were codenamed Brutus, codenamed Tate, and most importantly, Garbo. Garbo played his part to perfection through the entire operation. Even when it seemed that the Germans were beginning to doubt his information, berating them for their carelessness in ignoring his information until they apologized to him. Pretty much like lying and gaslighting are like 90% of this man's personal identity. (laughs) It's basically who he is at this point. This isn't even a hobby. He was born to do this. (laughs) This 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 was his one true calling you know he really missed his 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 time on the stage or as an, the abusive master of an orphanage in a in a dickens if he, book if he wasn't being a double agent he would just be at home trying to convince his wife she left the stove on <laughs> until she murders him <laughs> oh oh exactly absolutely he does at one point do something of the sort to his wife actually well you did say um, they're divorced so they are divorced Uh, During their time in London, she became extremely distraught because, like, obviously she wasn't allowed to move around very much and was basically kept constrained to their home because they didn't want to risk, German, British intelligence didn't want to risk her being recognized. So she was basically on house arrest in a country, like, in a, in a under siege war ridden country that she had never lived in before. And also, she couldn't go out to eat delicious scones, which is really... Yeah, she doesn't know the language. London is being bombed for a lot of this period. And she eventually decides that she is going to... She wants to go back to Spain. She doesn't want to spend another day with her husband. And uh, she threatens to reveal the entire plot uh, to the Germans if the British don't let her go home to Spain. That is some high-stakes shit, lady. Oh, absolutely. They talk to Pujol about this, and they're like, you need to talk to her. We cannot just let her go now that she threatened this. Control your woman. Yeah, basically. So he pretends that he uh, gets into a fight with the leader of MI5 over her honor and then has them pretend to lock him up and says that, like, oh, they're considering executing him. Which Holy shit. freaks her the fuck out. Yeah, you like, it wouldn't have been easier to just talk to your wife. You have to stage your own execution. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's not really shocking that they ended up divorced. Yeah, this is why she Um, left you, because you're a psycho. (laughs) Absolutely. You gaslighting motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Like, getting past the whole, like, like, psychological spousal abuse. Oh, good. Um, Not only did the Germans never discover Pujol's key role in the Allied deception, but later that month, only 23 days after the Normandy landings, Pujol was awarded the Iron Cross, a military decoration usually reserved for frontline troops that required the authorization of the Fuhrer himself. Oh, goddammit. <laughs> Incidentally, Pujol received an Order of the British Empire from George VI later the same year. <laughs> I think this dude just like medals. <laughs> he is, I think, the only combatant slash participant in World War II to have this dubious honor. 
of being awarded high-level medals from both sides in a conflict. I also like that, like, I think it says a lot about the Germans' self-esteem as a nation, that this man fed them false information that led to a disastrous loss at Normandy. And they still, and they were still like, eh, war. have a cross. You tried your best. <laughs> That's what matters in, here in Germany in the 1940s. Oh, absolutely. Trying your best and having blue eyes. <laughs> You don't have those blue eyes, but damn, do you try your best. <laughs> and that's all that matters. You know, go there, Arabelle. You've never done us wrong, ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pujol worked for the British until the end of the war, at which point, fearing Nazi reprisal, reasonably so, he faked his own death of malaria in Angola with the help of MI5, then moved to Venezuela to live in anonymity. There he lived in secrecy until he reemerged in 1984, 40 years after the Normandy invasion, he helped succeed. You couldn't just, you know, park your car near a cliff like a normal person? You have, you can't fake a suicide? Nope, malaria in Angola. It's the only thing that'll convince the public, really. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed this, Janelle, but uh, Mr. Pujol is a little dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> just, they're like, alright, it's time for you to just quietly disappear. We'll tell people that you died. No! I must act. <laughs> it's for my art. <laughs> Pujol's double life had ruined his marriage. Gonzalez struggled with living in a highly controlled, isolating experience in wartime. And after divorcing, Pujol returned to Spain with their children, who grew up thinking that their father had died. Oh my god, they didn't tell the kids? No, they did not tell the kids. Jesus. He lived in exile in Venezuela for decades, running a bookstore, remarrying, and raising the children from his second marriage. Pujol gave up a lot to stand for what he believed in. That being, lying to absolutely fucking everybody. Worth it. Absolutely worth it. He gave up everything he knew and loved, but after traveling to Normandy 40 years later and watching the people he helped celebrate, Juan Pujol Garcia reported that he was unbelievably happy. I mean... Solid outcome. Yeah. Lying for the sake of great justice. And also the laws. He got to lie, he got some medals. Yeah. Got to live in Venezuela, he's had a great time. <laughs> he's had the time of his life. <laughs> and yeah, that's Juan Pujol Garcia. What a man. A legend. An absolute ledge. <laughs> absolute legend. <laughs> and again, had he been born in a slightly different era... Instead of being a decorated war hero, he would just be a creep who sleeps on a series of people's trailer couches. <laughs> Absolutely. He would have been your one weird friend who always lies to you and you know nothing about their home life, but, like, they're funny so you keep them around. <laughs> just a happy accident of birth. Basically, he'd be me. <laughs> oh, God. You have a home and... A roommate who forces you to perform all of your hobbies in the closet? <laughs> Admittedly, I do love lying, but I'm not very good at it because I constantly giggle while while I do it. Yeah, you're less than convincing. <laughs> in any case, uh, that's Juan Pujol Garcia. And we have been fat, French, French and, and fabulous. And we're still working on the timing. You're working on the timing. I have this down. Greetings and salutations. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous. If you have enjoyed it, 
then consider subscribing or rating and reviewing us or recommending us to a friend, particularly if you want other people to find and enjoy the podcast. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Fat French and Fabulous or on Twitter at Fat French Fab. If you'd like to follow us individually so that you can keep up with every single thought and witticism that we produce throughout the average day, then you can find me at I Am Not a Lungfish and Janelle at Very Bad Llama. See you next week.